Welcome to the Self and Society podcast, exploring what it means to flourish as an individual and a community. This is your host, Ari Armstrong. Music by Jordan Smith, cjsclassical.com. Please join my email list for updates or help support the show financially at ariarmstrong.com. Our guest today for his second appearance is Kevin Curry-Knight. He is an academic who studies alternative schooling. And today we're going to talk about homeschooling and the difference between homeschooling and what I'm going to call crisis schooling. But we can talk about how we want to discuss that later. So welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks for coming back. Oh, thanks for having me, Ari. It's good to see you again. So... Some people listening to this might have listened to our previous podcasts, and I'll definitely put the link up on my webpage once I post this audio. And there we talk about homeschooling more broadly and alternate types of schooling, such as the Sudbury approach the and, and schools of, along those lines. And at that time, there's been a big change in my life since then, because at that time, I didn't know what I was doing, and my default at that point was to pick what I thought was the best school in my area for my four-year-old for this fall. And now, but then since then, and partly this was due to our conversation and partly it's due to me having conversations with my son as much as, you know, as much as he can contribute at age four. Sure. And so now we're pretty gung-ho on the homeschooling approach. So in my mind, even though he's not actually old enough for school, we are homeschoolers. So I feel like I have a certain amount of already, uh, experience to bring the discussion, even though I'm just starting out with this. Sure. So I think here's the big issue on the table. So as we speak, it's March 31st, 2020. As people say, it's the end of the longest month of our lives because we are right in the middle of a global pandemic Mm, with COVID-19. Sure. And so where this brings you in is that this has forced many, many families across the nation and, and indeed elsewhere in the world to stop sending their children to their regular schools and stay home. Now, this is looking quite a bit different for various families as far as I can see. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I know that in Colorado here, a lot of schools are going to – they're basically going to online teaching. So the teachers are still presenting presenting their classroom materials and collecting homework assignments and the like. So in other words, they're trying to reproduce this classroom experience – at home with the teachers at home and the students at home. Right. And so there's a lot going on here um, in terms of education. So I think think where I want to start is just how should we think about this? Because I know I've been reading some of your posts on social media and such, and you have expressed some concern about treating what's going on now as though that were normal homeschooling. So explain a little bit about what your concerns are and how you think we should be thinking about this. Yeah. Um, well, there's a delicate balance because those of us who are familiar with homeschooling and unschooling, which is homeschooling without any sort of forced curriculum, there's obviously things that we can contribute to the discussion. There's a lot of parents who are like, oh my gosh, this has been forced on me. Like, what do I do with my kids? And there's certain things that that we who are up on that literature can know and that we can kind of give suggestions and, and help with. But the two are really different in terms of what homeschooling really is and what this is. So what this is, is, and for lack of a better term, it's, it's crisis homeschooling or crisis schooling. It's uh, people are kind of forced to be at home. 
really, uh, the, it's not that they took their kids out of school because there was something wrong with the school or they didn't like the school's approach. It was really the schools were forced to be shut down because of this pandemic with COVID-19. Um, and parents are all of a sudden thrust into this role of, well, I'm not a teacher in terms of a professional certified teacher, but I have some responsibility now to make sure my children are, as you said, like replicating what they would be doing in school at home. Um, so I'm really hesitant to give too much advice in terms of, uh, you know, what we know from homeschooling, because most homeschooling is really different from what's going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's what struck me. It's like what I'm doing now is radically different from what we were doing even at the very beginning of the month mm, okay. in terms of how we're approaching things. So, uh, and so I've been thinking about this term homeschooling and in a way it's kind of silly. I mean, it's a really strange term for what's actually happening mm, mm-hmm, because yeah. what, what I'm doing with my son is almost not happening at home at all for the most part. Now we do do some things, you know, we do, we do, we go through math notebooks and such at home, Yeah. but most of what we're doing is not happening at home. We are going out to co-ops several times a week. We're going to the museums, we're going to mm-hmm. yeah. parks and such That's playgrounds. True. And so one way I've started thinking about it is it's more like world schooling, like the world is our oyster and let's go explore it. Right. Whereas now you don't, you don't have that. A lot of that is forcibly closed off to you. You can't go to the museum. You can't go to the library. You can't go to the store. Uh, and that's one of the big differences between most homeschooling and what we're seeing now is when you look at homeschooling families who homeschool by choice, uh, a lot of the education that their kids are receiving are because the kids are just kind of going out into the world. So it's not just in the house. It's not accessing the internet and books or stuff like that. There, there is that. But they're also going out with their parents when they're grocery shopping or when they're, you know, um, going out and taking care of errands or something like that. Or sometimes the kids just go to the library. And yeah, those things are kind of shut off to all of us right now. Right. And so, uh, however, we have been able to take some of this onto Zoom, which is one of the uh, mm-hmm. video conferencing services. Yeah. I guess, you know, people also use Skype and Facebook and I guess, I guess Google has one, but I don't know much about that. And so we have done, for example, we'll get online and do some story reading time with some of his friends. And one of my homeschool co-ops, we'll get online once a week and do things like story reading or playing uh, scavenger hunts and things like that. So we've been able to maintain something, a few things that are like our normal our normal lives, but it's, yeah, but it's definitely wildly different. Yeah. Same, same sort of thing with the Pathfinder community school, which your guests who listened to the earlier episode will know I'm on the board of directors for it's a, a place in Durham, North Carolina. It's more of a learning community. There's no, you know, structured curriculum. There's no forced curriculum, but of course being any sort of educational institution, they're shut down right now, just like everyone else is. So we've rolled a lot of the stuff that we do every day, like morning meetings and what we call spawn groups and things like that, and offerings online. But even then, it's it's not really that great a substitute. So even though these kids weren't going to any conventional school to begin with, uh, just the fact that the school space is no longer uh, somewhere you can go, just by itself changes a lot of the dynamics. So you can replicate some of it, 
um, online with Zoom and video conferencing software or you know chat groups or Slack, I think a lot of people are using. But yeah, just the fact that a lot of those things are shut down to us, those physical spaces are shut down, is itself a, a, just a huge difference between homeschooling in the conventional sense and, and what we're seeing. Another big difference, of course, between homeschooling in the conventional sense and what we're seeing now is that homeschooling in general is by choice. It's a voluntary choice, usually started by the parents, but usually the kids, especially as they get older, have a lot of say in that. So every year, often homeschooling and unschooling parents will kind of ask the kids, okay, do you want to go to school this year? Do you want to keep doing what we're doing? So it's a a family choice. And in this case, of course, it it wasn't really anyone's choice. I don't think uh, a lot of the families that have their kids home right now um, decided to do that. They were kind of forced to do that because of school shutdowns. Well, in a way, I fear that this may reinforce some of the worst stereotypes about homeschooling. Because I think a lot of people, when they think homeschooling, they think of religious zealots who are locking their children in the basement and making them learn creationism. And, uh, you know, let's, you know, there's a little bit of that, but that's not at all my experience with homeschooling. Um, so if you thought, if you thought about maybe there's, there's this negative effect of people are thinking that homeschooling is now, yeah. is now, this is what homeschooling looks like instead right. of what I think of homeschooling looks like. Yeah. And I share your concern there. Uh, one of my big concerns with saying that we're all homeschoolers now is that most people who aren't familiar with homeschooling as it's usually done have the idea of what you're doing is you're replicating school at home, right? The parent is the teacher. The parent has a curriculum. They sit down with the kids. They replicate school at home. And for most people, that's like a really tall task. Now, those of us familiar with how homeschooling generally works, it's not really that way. Academics, if they're focused on, you know, at all in a formal way, are usually relegated to, you know, two or three hours in the morning or whatever. And then the rest of the time, kids are doing what they want to do. So my worry is that if we call what's going on now homeschooling, people who already think that, oh my gosh, you're just trying to replicate school at home. I could never do that. That's what they're going to be convinced of because we're telling them that what they're doing at home right now is homeschooling. Uh, and I think that when you, when you talk to most homeschoolers, um, in fact, there's, there's studies that show this for the majority of cases, when homeschoolers decide to start homeschooling, take their kids out of school, at first they often start out with that idea that they're going to replicate school at home. And very quickly, what they realize is that kids actually learn more and better when they're doing stuff they want to do. So the academic time that you spend with a curriculum gets shorter and shorter until some people go all the way and just scrap the curriculum altogether. Some people still keep it, but it's a very minimal um, bit. So, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned that if we call what's going on with most families right now homeschooling, we're just going to reinforce the impression that, oh, my gosh, to homeschool, you have to replicate school at home. And this is not something our family could ever do. Well, I appreciate you bringing that perspective to the table um, because you you can kind of see – the motivation of people who are really excited about homeschooling thinking, Oh my God, this is a great opportunity to introduce homeschooling to people. But I think that there is, and I, and and in a way I think that there might be an opportunity, but I think that there is the danger that you're discussing. If we're not very careful to distinguish, you know, what about this is actually a little bit like homeschooling, which is some of it. And what about this is not at all like normal homeschooling, which is most of it. You know, I actually, I don't know how this is going to go. I'll be really interested to see how this all uh, plays out. Um, 
But it could go one of two ways. And I think certain families will go one direction and certain families will go another direction. So I suspect that some families really will start this as an opportunity to what we might call de-school, which is to be like, oh my gosh, these school structures that I thought were necessary, like periods of the day, and like my kid learns, you know, math for 45 minutes and English for 45 minutes, they're going to start to realize maybe we don't need those structures. Maybe those structures aren't as important as we thought they were. I suspect there will be some families who will go in that direction and realize that their kids, like, it's okay if my kid doesn't do work all day and just starts her math work when she wants to. It's, it's okay if my kid doesn't do math, English, and social studies all in one day, but spends one day doing math and then spends another day doing, you know, artwork or whatever. Uh, but I also suspect that there's going to be other families who will go the opposite direction and say, this is sheer chaos. I can't replicate school at home. I'm so glad we have teachers who can do that. And they're going to, you know, their kids will go back to school and they'll have a renewed appreciation for what school does for them. So I, I suspect that some families will go one way and some families will go the other. And it's going to depend a lot on what that family structure is and how they use the time where their kids aren't going to school right now. That's really interesting. And so maybe the advice coming out of this is for parents who are put, pushed into this situation is realize that this isn't like normal homeschooling and maybe give yourself a little bit of freedom to relax, relax into it a bit and do a little bit of experimentation and not get hyper stressed about trying to turn your house into the schoolroom. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it's. I would still be a little bit, I don't want to say hesitant to use that advice because I think in general that's good advice. But there are, as you said at the beginning of the show, different districts are expecting different things of students and families. So uh, maybe I should ask you what your district is doing as best you can tell because you're in, in or outside of Denver, I think you are, or Boulder. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in the Denver metro Okay, area. so I'm in Pitt County, North Carolina. So that's eastern North Carolina, the city of Greenville. And the schools around here are generally sending work home and they're doing some sort of virtual connection with their students. But they are under pretty strict instructions from what I gather not to introduce new curricular information. So not to teach new things, but to send a home review stuff. And part of the rationale from, again, what I gather is the demographics here, the city of Greenville itself in Pitt County is pretty suburban. But once you get outside of it, it's, it's large pockets of rural areas, which have the typical limitations and constraints that rural areas have. So there's a lot of families who don't have reliable or any access to the internet um, and of course, you can't go to the library to get internet, which is what a lot of them would would do normally. So students are doing review activities, and I don't know if those are going to be graded or not. Uh, so it's a fairly relaxed approach. But then I also know that in New York City, which obviously is a huge area, uh, what they're trying to do as best they can is replicate school at home. So they're sending home uh, all of the stuff that your kids would be doing in school, and you're supposed to learn it at home. And my, my, my thought is that they're going to try to kind of grade this and just try to keep as much business as usual as possible. So it really, it varies widely. Uh, I know some districts, I heard of one district in Massachusetts that is demanding uh, teachers that you cannot grade anything that was done during this hiatus because it would be unfair. Some kids have access to the internet and they can do all the stuff as usual. 
other kids don't, and we can't penalize kids for what they have access to at home. So it, it, and then other districts are trying to grade everything and say, this is basically, we're just continuing school, but we're not, you know, we don't, the school building isn't open. You so, know, that's, that's really interesting. And my answer is, I don't know about Colorado. It's the kind of thing I'd like to look for. I don't know if somebody's written an article comparing and contrasting this. Hmm. I think I want to check with Chalkbeat, that journalistic outfit that deals with education. Yeah. And see if they've done anything or see if they could do anything. Um, right. Like to aggregate, most yeah. yeah, to yeah, aggregate be, the data just to see what different districts are Because it, it varies so widely. Well, I'd be interested just in a Colorado report because we have, of course, the dense metro area of Denver Boulder. But then we have the less dense western slope and then the eastern plains. And so, you know, we have a, a wide mix of situations here in the state. But then, yeah, so so what I suspect is that Colorado is sort of a microcosm of what's going on nationally. Mm. But I don't know. I, I wouldn't know without Colorado-focused and then national-focused article along these lines. So here's how I would rephrase the advice that you had, had formulated before. The, the advice you formulated before is use this as an opportunity to just ease up a little bit and realize that you don't have to replicate everything about school. I would say it really... I like the advice, but I would say given the constraints and expectations that are that your kids and you are under in terms of your district, use as ease back as much as you can. Um, you may be in a district that really expects your kids to do all the stuff they would be doing in school, in which case it would be hard for me to say ease back because your kids might be held accountable for that. But if you're in a district like the one that I'm in where there's really no expectation that you're going to be doing new work. Yeah, I would say absolutely use this as an opportunity to say, okay, uh, we don't need to have school structures in this house. If my kid wants to do work in the morning, they can do work in the morning. If they want to do work in the evening, they can do work in the evening. If they want to go a day without doing work, that's fine as long as they get certain work done by the end of the week or, or whatever it is. So figure out what your situation is, what your district demands, and what your district is going to hold your child accountable for. And then figure out how much can I ease back? That makes sense to me. And I will point out here that I've run across quite a variance in how families handle homeschooling. So some families actually do have fairly, a fairly rigorous, rigorous curriculum. And so they are doing something that looks more like mm -hmm. regular school. Yeah. But, you know, based just on my limited experience, most families are doing sort of some curriculum, but less formally. And and sort of as you describe, where it's more at the child's discretion and with a lot of a lot of room for play in terms of what the child is interested in. And I'm trying to kind of take that middle path so far. So mm -hmm. so for example, I have these uh Singapore math books, which I like. But I'll ask my son, hey, do you want to work on these notebooks for a while? And sometimes he says yes, and he, ooh, I mean, we've sat for an hour and a half working on this at some yeah. certain times. And a lot of times he says no, and then I just don't push it. Yeah. Now he's four, so you know, you know, based on our previous discussion, that I tend to worry, <laughs> I yeah. tend to worry about this more than maybe you do. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so we'll see how this goes in, in future years. But so far, this is working fine because, you know, I'm finding what people say is true. Children do have a natural interest in the world, want to learn things. So. You know, my son is learning a lot of fractions just by doing baking. He loves watching baking shows. Yeah. And, oh, uh, wow. 
and baking. And so that's a great opportunity to, to begin to introduce, you know, what is a half a cup or a third of a cup? Yeah. Things like that. So, yeah. One of my, uh, our son Lachlan, who's uh, four right now. So he's kind of uh, quote unquote preschool age. Um, we were just doing a puzzle yesterday. Uh, we bought him some puzzles and, um, cause he really likes puzzles. He, he seems to get into them and every day we just try to hang out with him for a bit cause we're all home and it's, it's, you gotta, you know, keep the boredom off. And he's doing, he's doing this puzzle and he, uh, it was a 20, I think it was a 20 piece puzzle and he's getting really good at, at puzzles and you can see him kind of problem solving it. So he'll take the piece and he'll try to put it in the puzzle where he thinks it fits and either the shape won't fit and he'll rotate it or it obviously doesn't look like it connects in terms of the picture. So he'll like put it somewhere else where he thinks it goes. Uh, and it's just really interesting to see. And it's, I, yeah, it, that's, that's learning problem solving. You know, he's learning how to think critically in the in maybe the truest sense of the word. He's learning how to figure out what clues to use for a puzzle. This piece has a flat side, so it must go on. You know, it must go on one of the edges because the edges have flat sides. Uh, you're starting to see him like figure that stuff out. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to share a couple of anecdotes along those lines. So the first is we got some Lego kits. So one yeah. was for a Batmobile, and. And at first, I, I didn't appreciate these until we started doing them. But there's a lot to it in terms of, first of all, the 3D visualization. Where do these pieces go and how do they fit together? But also, how do you follow these pretty compli- complicated directions to achieve this final product? Hmm. And so I thought, I began, to, I began to appreciate the lessons that are implicit in some projects like these that a lot of parents might just think of as silly play. And then the other thing is a friend gave us Battleship. Oh, wow. You know yeah. that old, oh, that yeah. old game? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where you place the ships on a grid and then you try to guess where, they, where, they, where your opponent's ships are. And Ooh. then you, you guess right and then that blows them up. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, my son is learning coordinate geometry through this really fun game. Yeah. Now, he, he's a little too young to do it all by himself. So he, uh, he, we, right. uh, we play right. too. Right. But yeah. still, he's, he's sort of getting it. Okay. It's over so many and down so many. And that's a point on the grid. Right. So there's there's two pieces of advice that we can potentially give the families who have their kids at home right now based on what we've been talking about. I guess first, before I give it, uh, we should acknowledge that all of this requires having those resources. And, you know, there are some kids who are in homes that just don't have a lot of resources. So, you know, for those families, of course, you can try to get creative with whatever you do have. Like Battleship, it occurs to me, if you really wanted to, you could figure out a way to replicate that on paper. Right, you could draw boards. You could do that same thing with bingo. You could draw boards. Um, but the advice that I would give, the first piece of advice is, we like to think of learning as the academic stuff that you do in school. But there's a lot of learning that homeschoolers and unschoolers in the literature defines as incidental learning or informal learning. So when your kid is learning coordinate geometry with Battleship. He's, he's, he's not sitting down and saying, cool, we're going to learn coordinate geometry. Let's do some work on coordinate geometry. He's learning this thing that's totally unintended, right? It's the, the goal of playing Battleship is to have fun and to sink the Battleship. It's not to learn coordinate geometry. But when you play it, you can't help but learn coordinate geometry because you're playing this game that basically requires it on a basic level. And the same thing with puzzles. You know, the, the goal of a puzzle isn't to teach critical thinking. My son doesn't do puzzles because he wants to learn how to think critically. He does puzzles because they're fun and they're interesting. And we just really like solving problems. Uh, 
So the first bit of advice I think we can give to families who are, have their kids at home is that even when your kids aren't doing schoolwork, they will often be learning things. And if you look at what they're doing a bit closer, you'll often see, oh my gosh, my kid's watching a Netflix video, but it has references to history in it. Or, you know, it has references to science or something like that. Uh, so I, I think that's the first piece of advice that we can give to parents. And you know, this reminds me, just to yeah. uh, interrupt quickly, Amy Alcon, the science writer, she put something on Twitter recently, and I'll, I'll paraphrase. It's something like, play is evolution's version of the schoolroom. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, a, that was a pretty good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating, too, because kids really do have this drive if you give them resources, and again, you you know they have to have resources to do it, uh, even if those resources are on a budget. When you give them resources to solve problems, you put problems in front of them. Not every problem; you, you can't just put any problem in front of them. But puzzles. There's something that you know that we like about puzzles. There's something we like about these games, um, and it's because they're play. They're fun. They're, they're this challenge. Something I want to do, and it's this challenge, and you you learn through it. For sure. So what do you think about pointing out to parents the enormous resources that are now available online? So yeah. most people know of Khan Academy. My son loves this service called Mystery Doug, which is part of Mystery Science. Huh, I've never heard of that. I'll have to check that out. Oh, yeah. They're they're really phenomenal. I really love them. This is why my son can tell you that Ceres is a, is a uh, you know, where Ceres is in the solar system and why it's not a planet. Wow. And why Pluto was a dwarf planet and not a regular planet. <laughs> um, and he also loves this uh, YouTube series called Deep Look. And they're looking at kind of strange creatures like mites on your face and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it, it occurred to me the other day that the lists of resources, online resources, that I've seen come out recently. Yeah. You could literally spend centuries I mean, if you had it available, right. going through this material for yeah. like K through eight. Yeah. So what, what have you seen in terms of the, the resources out there? And how would, you, how would you advise parents to handle those in this temporary time? Yeah. I, I guess longer term too. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I like it partially because we are forced to do a lot of stuff online. So I believe um, about a week and something ago, my wife found that I think it was the Cincinnati Zoo was doing live streams of them taking care of the animals because they were closed, right? Because we can't have people here, so we might as well put live streams up. Now, my son wasn't terribly interested in it. We tried to put it on a few times just to see if he wanted to watch it, and he didn't. But man, I'm sure that a lot of people, if, if they can't go to the zoo, and, and your kids like going to the zoo or your kids like animals, you can. a lot of businesses and organizations are really stepping up and really putting online stuff that wasn't online before, or it was online before. We just didn't really need to look for it as much as we do now because we could go out. Um, so yeah, I mean, being mindful of the fact that some families obviously still don't have access to, to some of the, the, the online resources, those of us who do, uh, I think it's a, it's a great thing. In fact, John Taylor Gatto, who was the famed New York City school teacher of the year, who became an advocate for unschooling, he never called what he advocated unschooling. He called it open source education. And at first, I, was, I didn't really know what to make of the term. I was, it sounded clunky. I didn't really like it. But when you think about what he means, what he means is that in a school, 
the sources that you can learn from are decided for you by someone other than the learner, right? So the teacher decides you're going to learn from my lecture or you're going to learn from the textbook. Or you can write a paper, but you can only use quote-unquote approved websites. Um, and the idea of open source education is that the, the source that you learn from is entirely open to you. If you want to learn from Khan Academy videos and you like working through those videos, it's great. But if you want to learn from a textbook, that's great. If you want to learn math in some other way, that's great. If you want to learn from a live teacher, that's great. Um, and I think... Yeah, I think we're starting to realize, not just in education, but just in life, that there's a lot of stuff we can do virtually that we either didn't really appreciate before or we didn't appreciate the extent of before. And I like that. Well, I think here's the main thing that I've gotten from you, which is this change in orientation from, here, kid, I know what you need to know, what you need to learn. Here it is. Now go learn it. Mm, yeah. To the orientation of, Hey, here's some things I think you might find useful. Let me know how I can help you learn what you want to learn. Right. And that's the approach I've I've started to take more and that I that it seems to resonate better with our family and yeah. that my son seems to certainly enjoy more. I mean, so so even here's another lesson that I think from what we're talking about we can extract and we can give to families who are doing this very imperfect impromptu crisis homeschooling. Um is that all of the literature about education that studies choice and autonomy in education finds positive correlation to learning outcomes. So in plain English, that would mean the more choice a kid has or a learner has, the better the learning outcomes, the more motivated they're going to be, the more they learn, the deeper they learn, the longer they retain that knowledge. So one of the pieces of, of advice is that even if your school requires your kids to learn certain things, very specific things, and they don't have the luxury of saying, learn what you want to learn, you can still give them a certain amount of choice. You can say, okay, I know the school sent home worksheets and I know the school sent home like, you know, a textbook or whatever, but why don't you, if you want to, why don't you go find some videos to learn that? So maybe your job is like, let, don't use the, the worksheets if you don't want to, or don't use the textbook if you don't want to find some videos, learn it that way. Or find, you know, someone find some other resource to help you learn it. However, you want to learn it. So again, even if you have a required list of things you you need to learn, giving even certain elements of choice, like, well, learn it from whatever resource you want or whatever resources you want. That's fine. Uh, I think even stuff like that will help kids maybe own the learning a little bit more. That sounds good. I kind of want to loop back to something we started talking about earlier, which is this idea of socialization. So this is a, a big criticism that people make of homeschooling. I mean, it's the first question. How do you socialize your children? And having started down this path and joined various co-ops and all the Facebook groups in my area and so you're, on. You're starting to see what the answer is, right? <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So now my my position on this completely flipped, or at least I the answer became just stunningly obvious to me. It's like, all we do is socialize when we're quote homeschooling, which is why I think homeschooling is such a silly word for it. I mean, we're always going to public, public events. I mean, pre COVID-19 we were, and, and that's what I anticipate will happen once this crisis is over. And so to me, it's like, 
how do you socialize in these regular schools where they got to sit at their desk all day and do what they're told? It's like the problem for yeah. socialization seems to me to not be with the, quote, homeschoolers, but with the traditional schoolers. Yeah, it's a very different type of socialization. I think when they have socialization in mind, uh, conventionally schooled, the, the conventional school approach really has uh, something very different in mind than, than what homeschoolers have in mind. Well, here, I'll just throw out another anecdote here. So one of our co-ops that we were doing is this hiking group around Denver. Mm-hmm. And there's actually phenomenally more really nice trails really in the metro area or close to the metro area than I knew of before. So that's just been nice just to explore these. But my son and I were out walking with the group and we were walking on this trail and then down in the valley from the trail was a school and there was this big chain link fence and there was a group of students playing in the cl- playground with their playground equipment and we were out on out in nature walking around the world and I thought, <laughs> wow, those kids are down there in their cage and we're up here looking ooh, at them ooh, yeah. doing our quote homeschooling yeah. and that, no. that really uh, – it was kind of a surreal moment for me when I just stopped to think about that. Yeah. Um, and we definitely have to be careful when we're talking about the parents who are dealing, the families who are dealing with this current situation that, I mean, for everyone, socialization is a bit strained right now uh, because obviously we can't do certain things that we could do before. Like we can't go to the store and, and socialize that way or we can't uh, go out to some of the places that we used to go out. And that's that's not just true for kids. It's true for adults too, right? We're We're all moving all of our socialization online. So my wife yesterday uh, got several calls from our, uh, our nephew who is, you know, trapped in the house as, as everyone is. And he's, you know, a pretty social kid. So uh, he's discovered, I think there's some messenger app that's kind of parent monitored so the parent can monitor it. And he's calling everyone under the sun. He's calling relatives. He's calling friends. And so, uh, you know, it sounds like a good portion of his day right now is, is calling people. Um, and it's a pretty imperfect substitute for socialization proper. But also, if you think about what he'd be doing in school, I think we can argue that he's socializing more in these virtual spaces where his day isn't so regimented and he can't talk to his friends in, in class. You know, so even when he's on these virtual media, he's arguably socializing more than he would if he was actually face to face in school right now. That's really interesting. Um, my son at four isn't doing that much of it. Sure. But like I say, we're trying to do stuff, you know, about about every day. So one thing that the little kids have had fun doing is doing these scavenger hunts. Mm-hmm. So an adult will say, oh, go find something in the house that's round or fuzzy or cold or whatever. And for some reason, they just love <laughs> going off doing that and then showing their friends what they found. Right. So, I mean, I'm sure that there's many, many ideas for how to how to facilitate this. Um, but yeah, social, our social lives thankfully are not dead in this era. Thanks largely to the internet. So I guess we can look at that silver lining. Yeah, this is uh, it's interesting. A point that I want to make that probably has less to do with school. So I don't want to take us too much off the topic, but I'm kind of fascinated by this idea that again, I don't know what's going to happen after all this is over because a lot of folks are working from home right now. A lot of businesses are forcibly working online. So I wonder, as we come out of this, are we going to have a new appreciation for what we can do online and say, oh my gosh, we can do more online than we ever thought we could. There's no reason our business has to have like show up at work every day policies. Or it could go the opposite direction and say, wow, 
we thought we could do a lot online, but it turns out we're missing a whole lot that we could get only in a face-to-face work setting. So it could go either way, right? It could go, it could go a lot of businesses. You could see like abandoning some sort of like, you know, show up at work for 40 hours a week policy, but then other businesses could be like, wow, this is, we really need to have this workspace because this online thing just doesn't quite cut it. And I don't know which way it's going to go. And I suspect like we were talking about earlier with de-schooling, I suspect some businesses will go one way, some businesses will go the other way. Just like some families will go one way and some families will go the other way. That's interesting. I guess my guess would be that there's going to be some pretty dramatic shifts. I mean, before this, I didn't even know how to use Zoom or I barely knew how to use it. Yeah. So now, I mean, there's just everybody is ramping up their their learning curve on this stuff and that's not going to go away. And so here's here's what I here's my guess. I think there's going to be a lot more openness to things like working from home, at least for many types of professions. Yeah. But at the same time, I think people are going to really appreciate the face-to-face stuff. So in other words, so maybe they'll have their once a week meeting where everybody's really getting together. Right. And it's actually more social because here's what happens with a lot of offices in terms of as far as I've experienced or seen. They're, they're at the office together, quote, but they're basically all quiet looking at their screens all day. Yeah, <laughs> and so, yeah that's true. Right. And, so, and so realistically, there's not that much more socialization going on on a typical day, or at least for large parts of the day, than there is at, quote, home now where people are talking on the phones and Zoom. Yeah, yeah, and even a lot of meetings. If you think about what are the what is the value added of everyone being in the same room, like think of the last face-to-face meeting you had. What did what happened at that meeting that literally could not be done on a virtual environment? And was that thing important enough that you couldn't just sacrifice it? It's, it's really interesting to think about it. Cause I, I, I suspect different people are going to find different answers because different businesses and organizations have different needs and expectations. Well, here's another, this is a little bit of field, but in Colorado, there was a story out just today or yesterday about how therapists have gone to, have had to gone to telecommuting. Mm-hmm. telemedicine. Yeah. And this was actually outlawed before this. And so now on an emergency basis, it's been opened up. Right, right. But this is one of those things where I feel like, well, on one hand, if people can get more counseling in less time, it's it's better overall and more. it's kind of more screen-to-screen face time mm-hmm. than if you don't have it. But at the same time, I can imagine that's a scenario where picking up on the, uh, not the non-vocal cues, the body cues, and just having the physical presence right. could make an enormous difference. Right. And so, yeah. I, but I begin. But again, I envision these sorts of things where there's like some there, there's more screen time. There's more video conferencing, but then there's consciously carving out times to really have the personal experience. So maybe maybe how this could be applied to teaching is we're going to do more stuff online where you're not maybe not going to school every day for some mm-hmm. families, mm-hmm. but then we're going to have our, you know, once a week or once every two weeks or whatever get together where we're really going to make it a social time. And, uh, so I don't, I don't know. That's, I'm right. just speculating obviously, but yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be really interesting. And I think it's going to have to do a lot in terms of school with families and how they're structured. So one of the things that's really interesting to me is a lot of families obviously can't homeschool because they don't have a parent who's home all day, right? They don't have a stay at home or work at home parent, which is generally speaking, homeschoolers have to have some adult home, uh, especially if their kids are below a certain age. 
But we are seeing concurrently kids home from school and parents home from school. And I wonder how many of those parents are going to have organizations that say, wow, there's no reason you have to be in the office every day. You could do this from home. And once you do that, if you give those parents that ability to work from home, it'll be really interesting to see how many of them say, well, you know, my kid learned really well when they were at home. And I, you know, after several weeks, I kind of actually enjoy being around my kids and, you know, in a way that I didn't really appreciate before. Uh, wow. Maybe we could do like the homeschooling thing. But again, I, I, I'm sure different families are going to go different ways on that, depending on how they're structured and their needs and the, the constraints that they're operating under, but it's a really unique time. So I'm, I'm, I'll be really interested. Um, I don't want to sound too glib about it because it is a tragedy. Uh, but I do want to see how this all turns out, how, how these social structures change and how our thoughts about them change. Well, so just personally, my wife normally goes into her office Monday through Friday, eight to five normal schedule. Of course, she's been working at home now, and I feel extremely fortunate that she's able to work from home with her kind of work. Um, But frankly, if anything, she's at least as productive working from home. If nothing else, she saves the hour a day, a day commute, which adds up over the course of a year. That's a lot of time. And so, but the other thing that occurred to me with the COVID-19 crisis is it seems likely or at least plausible that there will be long-term return to normal. In other words, there are some people where being at work is crucial. Some people it's optional. Mm -hmm. And then there's this Mm -hmm. kind of gray area. Yeah. And so what may happen is that it's, it's sort of, we, we slowly move the line to where more and more people are going back to their physical locations as they can. But you know, my wife is probably at the end of that line and okay. because, I mean, they, they could they could exist for months without ever going to the office right. as a business, um, you know, indefinitely. Yeah. Um, whereas other people, if you're not if you don't have people in the off, you know, in the office because yeah. there's physical stuff to do, you're going right. to fail right. after a couple of weeks. So, right. but 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 this might be for at least many people kind of a months long uh, ordeal. Even yeah. if they do get back to quote normal, it could still take most of this year. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it'll, it'll just be so fascinating to to see kind of what happens. Because um, we always think of like the way things are at any given moment as the obvious way to do it. But then when you go through a crisis and you're forced to change, at very least you realize it's not the only possible way to do it and it's not as obvious as it appears. Like, of course, you know, you go to school every day. Of course, you go to work every day. That's just what you do. That's, that's how the world works. And then you realize, you know, all this stuff is kind of negotiable. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I mean, it's, I guess it's a silver lining. I hate, to, as you say, it's, it's, you hate to kind of try to draw, right? You don't want to be draw the good out of this because right. there's a lot, there's a lot bad going sure. on. And you know, there's, I think Colorado, we're over the 50 death mark. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. certainly we don't want to forget about the down, Absolutely. you know, the, the very horrible downsides here. But at the same time, I think a lot of people are reflecting. One thing I've pointed out is a lot of people are, it's, it gives people a chance to reflect on some of their biases. And they're reflecting on some of their ways of life. And so I think if we try to pull something positive out of it, a lot of us can um, do that. Um, so one thing I wanted to talk about with you a, a little bit, if you have time, sure. is your experience. I, I have a lot of time. My, my schedule is really clear. 
they are. Is is academia because you're also in the college setting, so you're you're directly involved with edu- with alternative education for right. children because yeah. you have a you have a son and you're involved with the school, and you're also involved with uh, the college life, and yeah. so I was interested in that. But before we get there, I just is there anything else that we want to wrap up in terms of homeschooling generally or homes crisis homeschooling or whatever we want to call it? Um, yeah, there's there's probably two more. pieces of advice that I really think that unschooling and homeschooling families can offer to parents in this other situation with full understanding that they're obviously not equivalent. We've talked about why. The first is that it's okay if your kids aren't learning all the time. Um, You know, in school, we we have this idea that, that time on task, it's all about time on task and your kid has to be on task as much as possible. And you hear all the stories. I've heard a lot of them from, from teachers and, and others who say, you know, if you get done eight or nine minutes, if your lesson is done eight or nine minutes before the bell rings, you have to figure out something else for them to do because they're not, they can't be on task. Uh, if the principal walks in and they're on task they're, and they're off, off task, there could be consequences. Um, but one thing we know from homeschooling and unschooling literature, and I'm sure you've seen glimpses of it, with your kid at home um, is that first of all, a lot of the stuff that you learn in school isn't really going to affect your life after school very much. So um, I don't know if you've seen the meme going around. I have no idea who wrote it, but it was, it, I think it was like a superintendent or a district leader or something where the meme was basically telling all the parents in the district it was beautifully written to basically chill out. And it said, one of the paragraphs said, your kids will not remember the lessons that they missed and your kids probably won't suffer for it. But what they will remember is that they had a relationship with you for these weeks. And what they will remember is that you made them feel safe. And what they will remember is all of the interesting stuff they were able to do over the weeks that they were home in this really unusual situation. And I thought that was a really brilliantly done letter particularly with what we know from unschooling and homeschooling, which is, first of all, you know, a lot of that stuff that, that we learn in school isn't ultimately terribly important. And if it turns out to be, um, you can learn it when you need it. In fact, learning happens very rapidly um, when people stumble across something that they realize for their own reasons, I need to know this. I need to do this. Learning can happen very quickly. So just as an example, um, a woman named Harriet Pattison, who's a UK researcher, put out a book, I think it was called Rethinking Reading Instruction, where she surveys homeschooling families of a whole bunch of different types. So everything from we do phonics at home to we don't really mandate any reading instruction at home. And she and other people have found that when a kid wants to learn to read, it's not uncommon that it will take them a few months to be able to get to a pretty adult level just because they are super motivated to read whatever it is that they want to read. And for some kids that's at age six and for some kids that's at age eight and for some kids that's at age 11. Um, but it happens rapidly and it, the, the unschooling literature is very clear on this idea that the learning is very rapid when it needs to happen. Um, and then the, the second piece of advice it's really difficult, but enjoy the time with your kids. Because one thing, again, we know from homeschooling and unschooling research is that one of the things, uh, I, I believe this was a study that Peter Gray and Gina Riley did when they asked 
unschooling families in particular, what, when you look back after the process is over, what, what is, what were the biggest benefits to you and parents, especially not as much kids, but parents said it was really the time that we were able to spend as a family. And of course, you know, most kids are home right now and most parents are like, I can't, I can't deal with this for weeks and weeks because my kid is just acting up and doing crazy stuff. Well, I saw a really interesting article, um, a newspaper article. I, I don't remember the title or the author, so I can't quote it, but it was from a homeschooling family trying to offer advice. And they made a really interesting point that I think is is probably correct if you look at the homeschooling and unschooling literature. Behaviors, kids' behaviors are in some sense cultural. So when you're in school and you have the constraints of school and you have to raise your hand every time you want to talk and you have to you know go to lunch in a line and all this other stuff and you have to go on the schedule. Yeah. When you get, when you get some freedom, you're going to act up, you're going to act up and, and it's going to be pretty wild for a while. But at some point you settle down because you know, it, it starts to get old acting up and, and you start to kind of just mellow out a little bit. And I think when you look at um, stories of unschoolers and homeschoolers, when they started the process, you know, yeah, it was a, a little bit of rebellion and it's a little bit of like, wow, finally, I don't have to, do anything and they just chill out all day and they, you know, act kind of crazy. And after a while they, they, they chill out and you start to learn how to function as a family unit in a way where, you know, it's just a given that they're at home and, and you're at home and, and you figure out a way to make it work. So again, I don't want to compare the unschooling homeschooling situation to what's going on with parents right now. But if you're, if you're at a home and your, your kids are acting a little crazy, uh, and they're acting rambunctious and you're just, oh my gosh, I can't deal with this much longer. Um, my guess is a few weeks from now, it'll start to mellow out a little bit and they'll start to be more autonomous and they'll start to be more self-sufficient. Um, yeah. Well, that's all. Yeah, that's great. I, that's, I really appreciate those points. I guess we, it's a good time to acknowledge one obvious difference in today's time, which is that people are pretty stressed out. And yeah. I think children are stressed out insofar as they understand what's going on or maybe know somebody who's gotten sick or some, or a parent who's lost a job. But I also think that this parental stress sort of seeps out into the children in certain ways. Mm, yeah. And so, you know, on top of the transition, the, just the normal stresses that come with any transition that you're talking about, there are some particular stresses going on right now that are going along with that other, those other stresses. And sure. uh, so I, I think that's worth at least reflecting on and, and thinking about the ways in which um, the degree to which our stresses are sort of contingent on, on, on our immediate circumstances. Yeah. And, and uh, I guess we can also kind of acknowledge that um, that's an opportunity to say, you know, they're stressed, we're stressed. We need our kids as much as they need us. Right. So if we're stressed out, about all the changes in routine, and surely we are. Um, they're they're stressed out also. So um, I know for me, one of the hard things is you know I'm a college professor. We'll get into kind of that, but all this stuff is going online, right? So I still have a lot of work to do. I still have to do all the stuff that I would normally do. Um, only I can't go to work and do it, right? I have to stay home and do it. So right now I'm in an office that's kind of adjacent to our living room. And I'm sure a lot of parents are finding it hard because you have to do all the stuff you'd have to do normally at, at the office, but you don't have the quiet space of the office to do it, right? Your kids are running around, they're popping in, they're, they're doing all that. And um, 
you know, not to sound like the, the Buddhist in the room, I guess, but um, the more you can just accept the idea that they're stressed out, we're stressed out, we're just going to adapt to our kids popping in. And if they see you working, cool, do that. Um, I think we were talking before the show about a, a viral clip of a weather person <laughs> trying to do the weather from home and their kids are popping in and out of the shot, um, right? Because it's unavoidable. You're at home. Um, you know, if I were that weather person, I would just be like, okay, everyone, my kids are going to be in the shots that, you know, that's cool. Like let go of the expectation as much as we can let go of the expectation that you have to be in one room to work and your kids have to be in another room because, uh, it's, you know, this is a new reality. Yeah. I think the, I think that's all well taken. Um, so do you want to shift into how you're managing all this in a college environment? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm a professor in a college of education and my classes are going online just like everyone else's are. And one of the interesting things about that is because of my belief in self-directed education, I don't do much lecture in my classes. So, What's interesting for those who don't really know the kind of teaching space is that lecture classes are actually fairly easy to put online because you show up to a lecture, you take notes, you take a test or you do a paper, um, you can ask questions and stuff like that. But all of that stuff is replicable online. It's very, right, you can record your lectures, you can have discussion forum sections, you can have virtual office hours if students want to ask questions, you can put all of your tests online, you can put all of your papers online. Um, you know, I mean, there's some things that, that you won't be able to replicate exactly with the face-to-face -face feel, but you can replicate that stuff pretty easily online. For more discussion-based classes, and my students are doing um, kind of individual self-directed projects, and every week we come to the table to do check-ins about our projects, and I have to replicate that virtually. And it's a little bit harder to replicate stuff like that, where the action is coming from everybody in the room rather than just one person in the room. Uh, but we figured that out to the point where to what we were talking about earlier, it's almost like, wow, you know, how much do we really need to meet face to face? Like if I ask students, do you prefer doing this virtual meeting? I would wonder what they'd say. I wonder if they if they would prefer to show up in person or if they would prefer to do virtual meetings. That'd be, that'd be an interesting thing to figure out. And, you know, as much as this... <sighs> may or may not change how families approach K through 12 education. There may, this may prompt even larger changes in college education. Um, it's unclear to me, of course, but with the student debt crisis and books like Brian Kaplan's coming out on the, the, the uh, signaling theory of education. Right. In other words, it's education isn't so much about what you learn and it's about demonstrating you can follow directions and be involved in a long-term pro process. Yeah. Things like that. Uh, it does, it does make me wonder whether this will eventually have, um, you know, whether this will prompt more serious changes in college education, even than we, than we might see in K through 12 education. Well, I just think financially also, um, you know, everyone's over leveraged, right? Students are over leveraged. Families are over leveraged. Government is definitely over leveraged. Um, if we go into a recession, let alone a depression, and I don't think anyone really knows what's going to happen. But if we go into one of those two, my worry is that I think that the college bubble was already a bubble waiting to burst. Um, just like the housing bubble, right? You you pay for college because college is an investment and college is kind of a, a bottleneck into the workforce, 
So you pay for college because you expect to get more value uh, when you go out than what than the value you put in. The tuition is going to pay for itself. I'm wondering if 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 significantly fewer families and and students are able to pay for college tuition. Are we going to start realizing just by necessity because people can't go to college that college isn't really as necessary as we thought it might be? Um, you know, people are going to have to figure out ways to say, well, I, I can't afford to go to college. Uh, I'm going to have to just go out into the workforce. Are they going to find out that they really aren't that much worse off than kids who went to college were? So I, I wonder if this is, um, I don't know, but I wonder if this is part of the college bubbles uh, invitation to burst. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, I'll share another anecdote here. I've talked to a couple of homeschooling families here in my area with children who are students who are more academically inclined. And their strategy is, and there are, there are arrangements between school districts and community colleges, mm-hmm. yeah. which, which can involve homeschoolers. And so their strategy is basically, the student strategy is to come out of high school, so basically turn 18, already with two years worth of right. college credits behind right. them through the community college system, which in Colorado is then very easily transferable to any, at least any state school. I don't know how transferable it is elsewhere outside the state or to other schools. Right. Um, and so there's also a push, at least among people, my, my circle, my new circle, of making college education, um, moving that lower, doing that earlier in your life so that by right. the time you turn, you know, what it normally is graduation from high school, you're actually half done with college, which to me, a student who's interested, that sounds like a great, like a great way to go. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, uh, unschoolers also do the community college thing because even if it's not, even if the credits aren't transferable, what they find is they need to prove to colleges that they do want to get into that they can handle, the college type environment, right? Like these kids don't have transcripts. They don't have, they, they haven't proven to colleges that they can handle being in a classroom. So Gina Riley and I on our podcast, Learning by Living, just had on uh, Bria Bloom. I don't think the episode is, is going to be released when this episode comes out, but uh, it'll be released pretty soon. And she is a lifelong unschooler. She never went to any formal school until she was 16. And she just decided, well, I'm going to go to college because that's what everyone does. So I might as well go to community college so I can get used to kind of academic settings and prove to people that I can do academic work. And that's what she did. Um, I don't know. I don't think she said in the podcast episode whether the credits transferred. I'm, I, I would suspect they did. But even if they didn't, a lot of unschoolers do that. They, they go into those community college settings just to prove to the college that they want to get into that they can do academic work. Like, see, I could sit in a class and get an A or a B or whatever it was. Okay. Yeah. That hadn't even occurred to me, but yeah, I see that as another possible benefit to going that route yeah. for ki- for s- children who are interested in the college track. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, where, where are we at here? I mean, every, everybody's schedules are <laughs> yeah. strange. Yeah. We were living in this sur- strange kind of surreal world and uh, where we <laughs> are having a hard time even keeping track of the days of the week. At least I am. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, where is there any other interesting direction that, that we should take this today, or are we ready to? Well, yeah, I, 
I don't know. I guess I just want to reiterate two things. First of all, um, any advice that, that we've given throughout the episode on, you know, what the homeschooling, unschooling literature can add to conventional schooled parents really needs to be taken with a grain of caution because those are two very different things. There are certain things, hopefully, that we've said that are applicable to those parents, but I, we, we really need to be cautious that uh, we don't try to just sell these parents on, oh, what you're doing is homeschooling and you should just unschool your kids. Um, because they're two very different things. So we definitely want to reiterate that. I just, uh, just for, you know, personal reasons, again, I'm just fascinated by this idea that things are going to change our relationship to all of these institutions, whether they're school or work institutions or institutions that kind of civic institutions, all of these things are going to change. And, and we don't really know how we just know that, uh, you know, we're doing a lot of stuff virtually in a way that we've never done it before. It seems to be working pretty well, all things considered. I mean, it's an emergency situation, but it seems to be working pretty well. I mean, it's you're not hearing major stories about, oh, Zoom just completely stopped working or like Google isn't working anymore. Or, you know, like we can't do certain things. I'm just really interested to see with school and work and all these other things, what direction this is going to go. Um, is this going to be the sort of thing where people start realizing we don't really need some of those face-to-face institutions anymore? Or is this going to be a thing where you start appreciating the face-to-face? I'll tell you, it just I don't know if this would be at all interesting to, to viewers, but without really thinking about it, I was reading some uh, Jean Baudrillard and Simulacra and Simulation and his works. Um, he's a postmodern thinker who was really interested in the idea of what happens when Everything, what, what, is, what do screens do to our lives and to our perception of the real? Because we can look at, you know, the world just through our eyes and see like, okay, this is the real world. But what happens when everything we look at is mediated by a screen and mediating by production and, you know, uh, someone who's producing images for us? Uh, and it's really kind of trippy to think about this entire situation where everything is going virtual through the lens of someone like Jean Baudrillard, who is really kind of trying to predict the future of what this would look like if every single thing we do is is mediated through some sort of screen and there's no more direct contract or contact between my eye and, and reality, quote, as it is. Um, again, I, that may just be only interesting to me, but um, it's kind of weird no, reading I, someone like that and, and thinking, wow, uh, this, this may be a... <laughs> a step in that direction, uh, maybe not quite there, but a step in that direction. No, I've, I've been thinking, maybe I have a little too much stress and time on my hands, but I've been thinking about these kinds of things. Like I have no direct perceptual evidence that there even is such a thing as COVID-19. Right, Absolutely. Right. Everything that I know about this disease and its implications comes to me through my computer screen yeah. because all, all the TV I watch is also through my computer screen. And so it's kind of this strange thing. I, I, I just this morning, I was thinking that movie, that Jim Carrey movie where he's stuck in this uh, made up world. Right. The Truman show. Yeah. 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 And I thought that would be, that'd be a fun movie to, to rewatch one of these days. Yeah. I don't know um, if, um, I don't know if Baudrillard was familiar. I don't I don't remember when the Truman show was, uh, was, was released, but, uh, I think Baudrillard died in the early two thousands, but I do know that, um, there's connection between his work and the matrix. I know that the matrix was kind of influenced by his work. Like what happens if we find out that everything that we kind of know is, is sort of a simulation 
Um, cause for Baudrillard, the big thing was, um, what happens when we get into a world where there's simulation and there's copy without being able to trace it back to an original. So like the idea of, okay, so imagine that all of this stuff that we're going through now was happening in the age where virtual reality was ubiquitous, where we could just plug on our goggles and we could literally go to work because everything is an avatar. Like everything is just avatar and simulation. Um, of course we can take off our goggles and say, okay, now we've returned to the real world, right? I, like the table is actually here. I can touch it. And I think for Baudrillard, he was trying to get at this idea of, well, what happens when the virtual literally becomes what there is? What happens well, if there, you go to work and there is no such physical place as work? You just go to work through screens. Well, another thing going on in the real world that's relevant is Elon Musk keeps shooting up a bunch of sat small satellites and – from what I gather, the idea is to basically encircle the Earth with a bunch of little satellites, which should provide extraordinary internet capabilities to people who buy those services. And so mm. I began to, I, I started thinking, I wonder if this will spur other people to also in, up their game in terms of internet provisions. And then if we'll get to something like Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash World, <laughs> where people are doing a lot more serious virtual reality interactions, um, which is a, you know, a step even above our zoom of today. Right. But then, but then another yeah. wrinkle is, well, then what if everybody moves into the computer world and then computer viruses start taking off and then we all have to take off the specs and go back into the real world. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot going of, the right, right. So there's a lot of potential unintended consequences, both good and bad potentially. Um, yeah, I, I mean, for those who have read Baudrillard in your audience, it's hard to not take a pessimistic tone when he's kind of thinking up what these scenarios are. Um, so I don't know if he was very optimistic about kind of what that world would look like, but there are people who are optimistic about it. John Lanier, the computer scientist, just put out a book on virtual reality, and I, I forget the exact title, but it's I think the subtitle is something like Why Virtual Reality Will Change Everything. Um, and in some ways his point is that like when we can do stuff without the physical limitations of space, when I can go to work without having to commute, but I can literally go to work, um, through a virtual reality set that, that will open up a lot of possibilities and it might even foreclose some possibilities. So it's, it's somewhat interesting to think about. I mean, the other thing that I think about with all of this again, cause I guess I'm kind of philosophically inclined. So I guess I just think about this stuff is, you know, like you said before, the only experience most of us have with COVID-19, unless we know someone who has it or has it, and that's a horrible experience, um, is through media, right? So I realized fairly early on about a week ago that when you're scrolling through your social media, there's two groups of people. There's groups of people who, there's one group who's a pretty pessimistic group and they share really pessimistic stories and they write really pessimistic stories. This is like the worst thing. It's, it's really, it's, it's horrible. This is going to be a, a, just a global, global uh, catastrophe. And then there are other folks who may be more optimistically inclined and they're sharing stories about how this really isn't going to be so bad. We're going to work through it. There might even not be a recession. This, this, we can get through all this. And what I find is that those stories on my social media feeds are shared back to back. Right. So the, so one person on my feed is sharing stories with the headline of, you know, this is the worst crisis ever. We're done for. 
And then the other, like the very next thing in my feed is this won't be so bad. Uh, we're going to get through this just fine. So what that makes me think about, and especially with my postmodern temperament, is if this were happening in 1953, of course, there'd be a lot of things would be different. But one of the things would be different is we'd all be getting our news from the same three sources, newspapers and, and like two or three TV networks. In some ways, that would be better. And in some ways, that'd be worse. In, in, in a certain way, it would be worse because, of course, those three networks could be wrong. There's not that diversity of opinion that can keep everyone in check. So if those three sources are wrong and they're all wrong in the same way, um, that could be a really big catastrophe because no one is, is able to produce news that's, that checks their biases or whatever. But in a way, it's better because you don't have to deal with this, who do I trust dilemma oh my gosh, I'm seeing all these stories and they're all saying completely different things, right? One story is saying this is the, this is the worst thing and it's going to just end civilization as we know it. And the other story is saying, oh no, this will be fine. And then you know, there's a range in the middle, right? So when you only have those three news sources, in some ways that's better because it's a source of stability. Even if it's a potentially quote unquote false stability, it's still a stability. You can say, oh, okay, uh, everyone's saying the same thing. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to coordinate my behavior. I don't have to worry about who to trust anymore. Um, so I think that, uh, and again, I, I think the postmodern philosophers actually kind of predicted this. When you have this proliferation of news media all telling you different things, um, you have this crisis of trust that you've never had before. So I wonder, how would this have looked in 1980 when you had three news networks and newspaper? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, good question. But this does uh, make it, it reminds me that this COVID nineteen crisis has prompted huge fights in among libertarian circles, and that's that's been interesting to me to observe is just the huge variance in opinions among people who consider themselves libertarians or I would consider libertarians, mm. all the way from people like. Tyler Cowen, who's extraordinarily concerned about it and, and agrees with a, putting the economy in a coma, mm -hmm. his term, all the way to people like uh, Richard Epstein. Isn't didn't uh, Epstein come out with some yeah, articles yeah. that were? Yeah, there's there's some there's some other people who are making some uh, claims about the disease, which I think <laughs> are not holding up very well, and then right. some people making some claims about um, what government should or should 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 or should not be doing, and mm. and this so that's been just sort of a microcosm of these just really crazy and wild debates people are having where people are reaching just radically different conclusions. Yeah. Um, even yeah, looking yeah. at the same basic news stories and I, and it's, it's been interesting to me to observe. Yeah. And it's, it's just really difficult. Like uh, Noam Chomsky, when he co-wrote manufacturing consent, one of the arguments, the key arguments there was that the news media is fairly curated before you even see it, right? The, the, you can only have experts who have a certain range of opinions that are quote unquote allowable opinions. And the news media gives you those allowable opinions to create this sense of like homogeneity, like people, all the experts agree with each other. And in this maybe postmodern age, um, we don't really have that anymore, right? Like if you want to, you know, for every story, you can find a story that disagrees with that story and says, well, that those experts are wrong. And like I said, in some ways, that's a great thing because there's no one party that can maintain a monopoly on opinion. 
But then again, it's also kind of a horrible thing because if you're looking for your social media posts or whatever it is, you're getting widely, you know, wildly discrepant headlines. And the question is, wow, I, I really don't know who to trust. Uh, and even when you think about which experts do I trust, it's that's hard to figure out. Um, but one of the one of my favorite quotes comes from uh, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, the existentialist philosopher. It comes from one of his journals, and he says basically the tragedy of life is that it can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards, right? So you must make a decision on which way to go before you have any idea of whether that actually works out or not. And during a crisis, it's really interesting to think about that because that's what people are doing, right? You have to figure out what to do. Do we make this decision or do we make that decision? And often you have to make that decision under a lot of stress, especially if you're a policymaker or a business owner, but even as a family, you have to figure out, do I take the risk of going out to the grocery store to try to get more food, but risk being infected with this thing. Um, but you also have to realize the second part of that quote is, you know, the first part is it must be understood. It can only be understood backward. So when Richard Epstein and Tyler Cowen are, let's say, are making wildly different predictions, I mean, nobody understands what's going to go on. Nobody knows what's going to go on because unfortunately the only way we'll know what works out is in retrospect. But then, of course, that's the dilemma. It's too late. You have to make a decision before you know what the outcome's going to be. So uh, there's got to be a lot of humility. But I guess to circle back uh, to what we were at before, I also just want to make sure we're kind of warned against, you know, there's a, a tendency to politicize tragedies, right? There's a tendency to, to say, oh, I'm going to use this tragedy to, to show why this policy will be a great policy. So like we always think about like school shootings. Uh, after after a, any given school shooting or after any given, I guess we'll say mass shooting, there's always like groups like um, you know, the NRA is quick to say, look, if, if we all had guns, that wouldn't have happened. And then the anti-gun rights groups are saying, look, if we had regulations on guns, that wasn't going to happen. And I... I can't help but see the same thing going on in in cases like this, where some people are using it as a way to say, hey, everyone, let's all unschool our kids now, because unschooling is the best policy. And uh, I guess I'm skeptical of that. It's, it's, that's probably a crisis is not the time that you should be selling um, your brand. Uh, I think that skepticism is warranted. I do want to quickly um, bring up the other side of the argument here. In that, in a certain way, I think a lot of people have gained strangely more respect for at least certain experts and more respect for the idea that ultimately there are facts that matter. Mm -hmm. Now, a big problem with this crisis is nobody knows actually how widespread it is. And that's simply due to lack of widespread testing. If, if you don't test people who have it, you don't know who has it because mm -hmm. a lot of it is is asymptomatic or very mild symptoms or symptoms that are very much like other diseases. Yeah. And, but beneath that uncertainty is a widespread acceptance of the fact that if we had mass testing, we could learn, we could, we could hone our estimates uh, a lot more. Mm -hmm. And so in a way we're sort of recognizing the limits of our knowledge here. I mean, there's still, even today I was reading different reports on how to estimate the mortality rates of getting this disease. Yep. And some people are still saying it's less than 1%. And some people are still saying it's several percent. Um, now, at least we know that 
there is widespread consensus, at least on a broad range. Nobody's saying it's 20%, okay? Nobody's saying it's 0%, right? And so even within this range of uncertainty, there's still, I think, um, a widespread recognition that there there is a reality underneath this, (laughs) that we can learn about it, Mm -hmm. if imperfectly, and that one thing we should be trying to do is figure out ways to learn more relevant facts, which to my, to my way of thinking, the obvious thing to do here is to just start doing more testing, whether that's everybody or randomized testing. or Right now, there's, right. There's, a, there's some testing going on in Colorado County, so I'm hoping that those results are very revealing when they come out, hopefully in a few days. So I hear what you're saying about these variances of opinion and this really – at a certain level, impossibility to perfectly predict the future. But I also do want to kind of make briefly the case that um, there is there are some things we can know and some things we do know, and some things we can know even better if we had better tools. Well, I I agree with you to, to an extent. I mean, there's obviously something that, that COVID-19 is, and there's something that COVID-19 does, and that's not dependent on anyone's opinion about it. But when you say there's certain things we can know, I would be tempted to say there's certain things that it looks like we can know because we agree on. So the, the question becomes, let's say we do those tests, but let's say different experts disagree on what how to interpret those results. And let's say they put out different estimates based on those different interpretations. Surely there's a right answer somehow. How do you figure that out? independent of the opinions of various experts, right? The only reason you can say you know something like that is because the experts happen to agree on the interpretation. But when the interpretations differ, it's going to look like you can't know. And figuring out how to figure out what the knowledge is, is going to be really difficult. And the only way to fig- the only way to make it look like you know is when the experts say, "Okay, we've hashed out our disagreements. We agree on what the solution is." Well, maybe one way I would put it is, our epistemic glass is half full, and I think you're tending to want to point to the ways that it's empty, and I'm po- wanting to point to the ways in which it's full, and I think both sides are actually um, right in a certain way. Mm-hmm. But you know, I don't. <laughs> we don't need to. Direct. I think if we yeah, kept yeah, digging, yeah. we. I think if we kept digging, we would reach some philosophic disagreements, which we've yeah, talked yeah, previously yeah. about. Maybe having a, a discussion. Yeah, yeah. About postmodernism, because that's another thing where right. Because because I think we should probably my circles have some pretty radical disagreements on what that is and what that implies. Right. So we should probably specify for the guests that you tend more towards. Um, I don't know you'd say like, well, I tend more towards a postmodern sort of perspective, whereas you tend more towards, I guess you would say almost a realist perspective. Like postmoderns tend to be more skeptical about our ambitions about knowledge claims and, and other folks are a lot more ambitious. So I think that's where our general disagreements would come from. Yeah, I think I tend more toward the Aristotelian, Ayn Rand, realist line of things. Right. Certainly more than, certainly more than you do, I think. Right. Yeah. But notice that I qualified that. I'm not sure, but I think that's what it is. No, I, I, that, that's, that's probably right. Um, I get my information mostly from people like William James, the pragmatist and Richard Rorty. Um, you know, m- maybe some like Michel Foucault, depending on what parts we're talking about. Well, I think this is a good time to loop back around to our, what we're supposed to be talking about, which is homeschooling. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think what the way I would 
the main lesson I think I would try to draw is that what people think they know about homeschooling is often not what homeschoolers actually think it is. Sure. Yeah. And so if nothing else, maybe this is a good time to stop and check the stereotypes and, uh, and not assume that what we're, what crisis schooling is the same as homeschooling and start to think about what, what authentic homeschooling looks like or could look like, or maybe could look like depending on your particular family's needs and circumstances. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what I hope would happen is that a lot of families are going to use this as an opportunity to start questioning, well, how much of this stuff that we're supposed to do in terms of replicating school at home, how much of this stuff really does matter? Um, like when when you look at the, the assignments that your kids are, have at home and the stuff that they're expected to learn each week, like how much of this is really going to affect their lives? Like if they don't learn to subtract fractions or if they don't learn what the groups of, uh, of uh, elements are, the periodic table of elements, how much is that really going to affect their, their prospects? I would love that to happen, but I don't think it's my job or my role or my place to push that, right? Because parents are dealing with a very extraordinary situation, and they don't have the luxury of saying, you know what, my kid doesn't have to learn this if my kid doesn't want to, because most of those kids are going to go back to school and they will be maybe penalized or rewarded based on whether they did learn to subtract fractions or whether they did learn the grouping of the elements on the periodic table. So, uh, but I do hope that families will at least start to think about like how much of the structures of this school thing that my kid was going through, how much of this is necessary given that we've gone through how much time at home uh, and their lives didn't, didn't collapse. Okay. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. So our guest today has been Kevin Curie Knight. He is works in academia, work thinking and writing about alternative forms of education. Thanks a lot for being on the show today. I really appreciate you coming back. Yeah, thanks, Ari. And for more, please see ariarmstrong.com. Mm-hmm.